Welcome to the Hopkins podcast on Formula First, Alien Edition. Joining me today, we have Megan Rodkay and Zach Wheeler. My name is Francis Cecilia, and we are going to be talking about international relations theories today and aliens. Yes, yes, we are, France. No IR theory conversation is complete without aliens, thus, you know. So here we are. Here we are. Where did we get this <laughs> idea from, Zach? Okay, so international relations theory and aliens. So we really wanted to have an IR theory day. We thought it made a lot of sense. It's a good starting point for an international relations podcast. You need some theory behind you to understand different trends in the international system. But, but we thought that if you just stood there and talked about international relations theory for 30 minutes, just reading off bullet points, that would be super boring. Exactly. So we wanted to do something creative. We wanted to do something fun. Here we are. We're talking about aliens. It's not going to make sense at the start, but we will get there and it's going to be fun. Um, the idea. So there's a book called International Politics and Zombies, and it's by Daniel Dresner. I read this book. It was suggested to me by my CIPTA. Luis, and it's an incredible, incredible book. We really recommend you go read it. It'll teach you anything you ever want to know, everything you ever want to know about international <laughs> relations theory, and and zombies. And, and zombies. zombies. Yeah. Now, important <laughs> distinction: we're not talking about zombies. We're talking about aliens here. Mm-hmm. Essentially, how this podcast is going to be structured today is we're going to go over the three main theories of international relations, which is which are, excuse me, realism liberalism and constructivism we're going to talk about those and explain just basic summary of all three so if you're an international relations student or you're just interested at all that's going to be super super helpful if you already know international relations theory you can skip right ahead maybe around the 17 minute mark and we'll talk about aliens so after we talk about international relations theory we're going to dive right into the objective of the day which is applying international relations theory to an alien invasion of the United States and the world. Get ready for it. It's going to be awesome, and you should be excited, and we're going to try to have a fun podcast. Yes. So if we want to dive right in, um, Franz, what do we know about realism? Good question, Megan. There's actually, I think it was Hans Morgenthau who came up with the six uh, main principles of realism. Uh, The first, probably the most important one, is that the international system is anarchic. That means that there's no governing body out there that governs over the different nations and states. Um, The second one is that states possess offensive military capabilities. Third one, states' primary objective is security and survival, although some realists might argue is the pursuit of power for for that security and survival. Uh, The fourth is that states act rationally to achieve their interests, primarily security and power. And the fifth one is that in the intentions of other states are forever unknown. Meaning that even though Megan and I, or Zach and I might be good friends, I will never know what his true intentions are. So I'm gonna stab you in the back, take exactly. over the podcast. You don't know. Megan. Exactly. I lie. Evil. I can lie. Evil. <laughs> and finally, the last one is that human nature at its core, it's bad or rotten. So those are the six major <laughs> assumptions of the realists. It seems a little morbid, 
but it's a little pessimistic. Yeah, a little just pessimistic, a little bit, just a little bit. But the reason we're starting with this is that I, it seems like the evidence would suggest that it's the the oldest international relations theory, since it can be dated back to the days of Cardinal, Cardinal Richelieu, of like King, the, King, the the France of King Louis the Fourteenth in the sixteen hundreds. Um, Realism has been pretty much the dominant theory of international relations for a really, really long time. And its main competitor, liberalism, which we're going to talk about, has kind of more recently came into power. But realism for a really long time ha has been the dominant theory. And these, these six principles that Franz just talked about are so important because these are the bedrock assumptions of realism. Like realist people who subscribe to realist notions really believe that these assumptions are correct and they build their theory of international relations from these six assumptions. So that's really important to note. And so going into the 21st century where we see that the world is more connected than ever, owing either to technology or owing to people's you know, attempts to make the world interconnected, people question whether or not those realist assumptions are true anymore. And so that is where people either refute or confirm realism is on the basis of those six assumptions, which is why they're so foundational. Moving on to liberalism, the main tenet of liberalism is that an interconnected world is a good thing, and we should try to make the world more interconnected because that leads to more peace. So rather than being almost paranoid like a realist might be, or not trusting other people, liberals will seek ways to make other people more trustworthy, or make the international system more trustworthy. Liberals believe that people can change, and that states can be either good or bad. So a good state would be a state that is interconnected within the international system. Um, a good state would be democratic. And then a rogue state would be a state that is expansionary. It doesn't want to obey international law. It doesn't want to obey the wishes of other states. And it may not be democratic, and it may not be integrated within the economic system. Yeah, realists, realists really don't look at whether or not a state is good or bad. They, they don't really think that's a thing. They think the only thing that matters when it comes to state is how much power these states have and how they wield that power, right? Mm -hmm. So whether or not how their government is created, what their policies are, they don't really care. Realists do not care. The only thing they care about is power, whereas liberals actually really do look at the internal structure of governments and how that reflects on the country as a whole. A very good example of what Zach is talking about is... Um, Cardinal Richelieu, he was a Catholic cardinal uh, back in the 1600s, and he was basically the foreign minister of France at that time, and he saw that the Holy Roman Empire was beginning to unify under German leadership, and he wanted to prevent that, so he convinced King Louis XIV to provide um, monetary supply and, and weapons to sw the Protestant Swedish armies and Protestant leaders in Germany to basically keep the Holy Roman Empire fractured so that France could remain the the main power in the region. Wow. All France right. knows way more than we do. <laughs> so 1600s to almost present, um, liberals mainly challenge the realist assumption that the international system is anarchic. We say, or liberals say, that we can fix this. We can make the international system less anarchic or maybe even governable. And so the way that we do that is through uh, the Holy Trinity. And so... Holy Trinity, one of my favorite people, Professor Stephen David, in his book Catastrophic Consequences, while he is a realist, he did describe liberalism as the Holy Trinity, and he talks about how that affects the international system. So, Megan, what is the Holy Trinity of liberalism? The Holy Trinity would be, um, first of all, free trade or economic interdependence, and so that will make it 
more costly for countries to go to war with each other because if I'm used to buying coffee from Zach every day and I get into a fight with Zach, then where am I going to get my coffee from? I mean, maybe I'd rather not fight with Zach. <laughs> um, the second aspect of it is um, democracy. So if we spread democracy, then countries will be less willing to fight. And so that stems from the democratic peace theory, which states that democratic democratic states are less likely to go to war with each other because they are democratic. And so the democracy manifests itself in peaceful measures through a few ways. Um, first of all, maybe it's culturally. Maybe people who grew up in democratic countries are more used to conflict resolution through conversation rather than through armed forces. Additionally, democratic states have a better understanding of each other. So if I trust Zach, then I might be more willing to go into negotiations with him because I know he's a democracy. But if I don't trust Zach and I don't know his intentions, then I might rush to war without thinking. Scary stuff. Very scary, scary stuff. stuff. Um, also, democratic, democratic governments also have almost like structural restraints on going to war because they usually have to check with Congress, they have to weigh public opinion, and so they may just be less likely to go to war for those reasons. Democratic peace theory is... We could have an entire episode about democratic peace theory, but mm -hmm. it is yeah, pretty much a central tenet to liberalism, so figure we might as well touch and on hey, it. And hey, maybe we will. Right. Know. <laughs> yeah. Somewhere and in the future. The last pinnacle of that holy trinity are international institutions. So institutions are almost a tool for a lot of this. So international institutions share information, and that is the most important part. If I can share information with other nations around me, then I might be able to trust them more. So if we have treaties and if we have watchdog organizations that make sure that those treaties are followed, then I no longer have to you know, distrust Zach, rather, or Franz, we can work together and we can achieve something that we wouldn't have been able to achieve alone. But now, how do you know that I want to follow this international treaty, though? And that is exactly what a realist would say. I, you know, The liberal can say watchdog organizations all day long. The liberal could say, you know, just, just trust, just, just almost blind trust. And why wouldn't you try trusting? But a realist might say that the risks are too great to trust someone or to trust another nation. You can't yes, do that. Yes, because remember, human nature, according to realists, is rotten. We're apparently terrible people. But according to liberals, people can change, and so can states. A nice dichotomy between <laughs> realism and liberalism. And Megan, did you touch on? I'm sorry, did you touch on institutions, or should I start talking about constructivism? Um, I guess one last thing about institutions is that they're built on cooperation. They're built on building trust through information. And that eliminates what we call the security dilemma, where that's basically the international, that's that inter, um, intentions between countries are unknowable. So that's another realist principle that liberals think we can change. Right. So you have these contrasting theories, right? You have realism, which says pretty much war is inevitable. There will always be wars because of this power dynamic, because of the struggle for power and security, and because you don't know the intentions of other states. Then you've got liberalism, which essentially says, we can fix that, we can change that, we can make countries good, we can find a way to make treaties using international institutions, we can have economic independence, war does not have to be inevitable. Then, a third theory of international relations, which is really cool, it's one of my favorite, is called constructivism. Now, constructivism is a little bit different from liberalism and realism, in that it's not, it's not prescriptive per se, Right, So in a realist and a liberal approach, there are specific policy you know, actions that you could take through these international relations theories, whereas constructivism would not prescribe a specific you know, foreign policy goal. It more describes why you know, 
the way the world is and why. Right, so it's very abstract. It's much more abstract than realism or liberalism, but it doesn't mean it's wrong. So let's talk a little bit about what constructivists believe. So one of the main tenets of constructivism is that they believe the structure of the international political system is societal, not material. Societal, not material. And this is a really abstract concept. So what does this really mean? Essentially, when constructivists say that power and the international system is societal, not material, it, it's talking about how people's perceptions, their filters of the international system, of power, of physical capabilities, all of those, the way you perceive those capabilities is how you actually perceive them as threats. So if that didn't make any sense, exactly. I'll try to explain one more time. So here's a good example. This is a common example. We use this in the CIP class. Uh, essentially, North Korea builds five nukes, five nuclear bombs, right? Then Britain builds those same five nuclear bombs at the same time. Constructivists would say that the American populace would be much more concerned with five North Korean nukes than five British nukes. They might not even think about five British nukes because it happens all the time, right? Essentially, why this is is because constructivism says is that societal perceptions change the way you interpret material capabilities, right? Even though a realist would in theory say that Britain got five nukes, North Korea got five nukes, they should have the same fear factor as they're achieving the same amount of power. Nukes are nukes, same nukes. Uh, another important thing about constructivism is that it, it thinks that history plays a bigger role than cur the, the current state of affairs in the world. So, and they do this to in order to explain certain situations that's been happening, right? So, so for example, um, Russia, right? we see Russia as this expansionist warmonger. But if you think about it, Russia has been invaded by Napoleon, it's been invaded by uh, the German Empire, it's been invaded by Nazi Germany, and, it's, and further back it's been invaded by Mongol entities as well. So for that reason, they decided that the best way to defend themselves was to go on the offensive. So that's just part of their culture, part of their history, and constructivist acknowledge this as a central part of their of the Russia's current foreign policy. Because Russia believes and perceives that it is under threat based on their historical perceptions developing in the culture over time, that makes them more expansionary. Mm -hmm. But if the Russian people change their own perception, would they still be expansionary? Con constructivists would say no. Realists would say yes, because all states want power, and Russia has the power to get more power. So on the same vein as that, um, going back more to constructivism, constructivists would say that it's a realist international system if the international system believes itself to be realist. So if everyone in the world was a realist and believed that the other people cannot be trusted and that, world, and that war is inevitable, then war will be inevitable. People won't trust. Um, conversely, if everyone on the world was a liberal and believed that everyone can be trusted, that everyone does want the common good and that people are good, then that's how the world would be. So constructivism says that realism, rather than explaining how the world is, it's more of a description of how the world is and that we can change that description if we change ourselves. Right, and something really important along with that is even though constructivism says the world, the way the world works is through how society perceives the way the, wor the, way the world works, <laughs> sorry, even though that's so, does not necessarily mean that the world is can be easily changed, right? So if the 
societal perception of the entire world is okay we live in a realist world war is inevitable just because in theory constructivism says if everyone changes their mind then the war is not inevitable doesn't mean that everyone's going to change their mind because constructivists know that you know these fundamental thoughts and theories of how the world works aren't exactly easily changed and and, and because of that you know it's not like constructivism can just you know may wave a magic wand and change the way the world works societal perceptions can be sticky per se makes sense so franz do you want to bring us into the awesome stage of this podcast also known as the alien invasion all right yes so something interesting has happened on earth aliens have invaded antarctica and now the penguins are subjugated. So uh, we're gonna describe these aliens. Happy feet, happy feet. Yeah. Oh, happy feet, no right? longer happy. Yeah, no longer the, happy feet. Who was the protagonist? They're sad feet now. They're sad feet. Who, what was the main character's name? I don't even remember. Subjugated feet. Yeah, he's sad. That penguin <laughs> is sad now. His name is now a number. He's no longer happy. Feet. <laughs> uh, yeah. Now he's under the thumb of the of the aliens. Alien overlords. They All invaded right. yesterday. Um, Franz, tell us what we know about them. Oh, we know five things about them. We know that they are state actors, meaning that they act and will act like any other nation in the world. They're rational. They have offensive military capabilities. Hopefully they don't have, um, you know, Star Wars level technology that will death star us to pieces. Uh, hopefully. Um, they also took all of Antarctica, so no penguin got saved, <laughs> except for those that just are in South Africa and Chile. The refugees. The refugees. <laughs> Whoa, that just got real. Sorry. Uh, and then um, they speak every language to facilitate communications. So, Megan, do you want to tell us a little bit more about what the earthly response has been so far? So far, there hasn't been very much time for an earthly response. This is pr this is very much you know our first response to the new alien threat that we did not see coming. And so what we're going to simulate in this podcast is the convening of Congress of the United States. It could be other countries, but we're going to work with what we know, which is the United States. The convening of Congress. Congress has invited three policymakers. That's us. And we are going to debate the tenets of realism, liberalism, and constructivism in figuring out how to address this new alien threat. Because there are so many ways that Congress could respond to this, and we're going to try to figure out the best one. But the twist is... You, the audience, you guys are the Congress people. So you will decide, based on our testimonies, what your own personal thoughts are on you know, the theories and what we should do about the alien invasion. Now, we have a big disclaimer to make, and it's, it's huge. And that is that nukes will not, be play, will not play a part in this scenario. No nukes. No nukes. Nuke day will come some other time, and hopefully we'll have some professor to talk about that. But right now, since... They really do change the policies of all, of all three policies. And mm -hmm. um, we will work under the assumption that nukes just won't be used or they just don't exist. That will make things simpler. Right. And so another really interesting thought. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> another really interesting thing about this simulation of sorts is there is no correct answer. There is no such thing as a correct answer. And that's, you know, kind of a large part of international relations. As much debate as there can be, as much empirical evidence as you can use, it's really difficult to decide and determine what is the actual correct theory that should be used. It's rather, right, there's, there's no correct objective truth 
right? Realists would say there are objective assumptions, and if those objective assumptions are true, then realist, realist policy should be the best policy to enact. But because there's no way of knowing those objective truths, we have no idea if realism is the correct route. So it's really what you as a listener believe is the best policy. If you think that cooperation is possible, if you think that war is not inevitable, maybe you're, maybe you're a liberal. If you think that societal perceptions really change the way that people think, maybe you're a constructivist. And if you think, hmm, human, nation's, human nature is rotten and war is absolutely inevitable, then you're probably a realist. So yeah, should we hop right into it? Should we oh, dive into it? hold on, one more tangent. That is kind of important. So uh, just a little bit about this book, International Politics and Zombies. So in the book, International Politics and Zombies, which is really great, once again, I suggest you read it. Uh, specifically, the differences we have here is, first of all, it's aliens, not zombies. Huge difference, guys. Uh, huge. huge. Huge difference. Um, there's probably a th someone offended about, like, you know, aliens versus zombies, you know, <laughs> like, how different are they? But anyways, a, a main difference is, our aliens we have are really rational right like they can make rational decisions whereas zombies in his book they are irrational all they want is brains right so we are saying that aliens can be you know is diplomatized a word diplomatized with uh which is a, which is pretty important so that will come into play and rational basically just means that they want to survive just like the united states wants to survive just like russia wants to survive they want enough power to survive but you know, maybe they don't want to have too much power, but that's something that we don't quite know yet. So, yeah, should we? We're going to kick it off with, first of all, what the realist policymaker would say to Congress in the event of this alien invasion. And, Franz, would you, would you want to talk about the first thing a realist might say? Absolutely. Uh, well, the first thing is that we need to recognize that we live in the United States. So, we are thousands of miles away from Antarctica. So, a realist would first say, hmm. Do we really want to get involved? Maybe we just do nothing. Exactly. Like, what what do we care about uh, some penguins that just got stranded over there in the under the thumb of some alien dictator, right? I mean, Argentina's closer. Why doesn't Argentina spend its resources to try to take care of the exactly. problem? Exactly. And Megan did just bring a good point. Like, if we get involved, what happens if someone backstabs us? So right now, why not just not do anything so that other countries can deal with it? But right. while we wait, we might want to invest in research and development, R&D, into military capabilities, and just prepare, because we can't trust anyone. Right, and remember, this threat, it's so far away. Right now, it doesn't really have an effect on us, so we might just sit back and wait. We might, it's, in international relations, this is called buck passing, right? We can essentially just give someone else the mantle, maybe they go fight the aliens, it doesn't affect us right now. We can have a good time and, you know, pray for the penguins. <laughs> we would focus on our core interests, our survival, the penguins, you know, that they don't impact our own survival. We need to stick to ourselves and only act when we absolutely have to act. And right now, we can make Argentina act instead. You yeah, know, we, we can let the millennials create some cute hash hashtags. Yeah, like hashtags. Save, hashtags. Save the penguins. <laughs> it's funny because we're literally all millennials. But anyways. Yeah, so I do participate in hashtags. Franz, what happens when we notice that the aliens are building up their material capabilities, right? It's they're they're starting to subjugate different islands. They're you know kind of expanding a bit outside of our or Antarctica. What do we do as realists? What do we say to Congress if they're starting to do that? Well, in that case, um, it gets to a point where it seems harder to ignore. So we must seek prudent alliances with countries that might have the capabilities of dealing with the problem, because we have to remember that this is a self-help system, and that if 
we don't do anything, nobody's gonna come around to help us. So in that case, alliances might be useful, but at the same time, we have to be a little, you know, prudent as to who we ally with because we don't really trust them too much. Maybe and someone will take advantage of us if we go into an alliance with them, right? Can we really trust Russia? Can we really trust China? You know, we don't know, and that's in a really important part of realism. Exactly, and at, that, and at that point, we also have to be very careful of other alliances. Mm-hmm. What happens if, say, Russia and China start working together, start, I don't know, striking a deal with the aliens? At that point, we have to uh, find another alliance to balance the power of the entire situation. Right, like at, maybe at that point, we like send up a galactic signal to find more other aliens to help us oh, out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> The realists would say that we have to be very careful not to assume that it's humans versus aliens, because really it's every state for themselves. Wow, that was put so well, man. That was that was savage. <laughs> so yeah, it's 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 th- that's a pretty essential part of realism, and another part is the aliens themselves want to survive, right? They are rational, so maybe we do have to worry about them striking a deal with the Russians behind our back. Maybe we do have to worry about them strike. You know, maybe the Canadians are like, now's our time to act. <laughs> now's our time to, you know, fight back against U.S. hegemony in the North America. And you will no longer mock the way I say about anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, they're, they're going to, you know, they're going to help their Antarctic brethren and, you know, save the penguins. Send the polar bears over there, too. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, that, you know, the system of alliances, balances of alliances is maybe one of the first things that would happen in a realist system and what a realist would propose to the United States Congress. But after the, you know, balancing of power, the creation of alliances, what happens next? That depends, I guess, how we do things. Maybe, you know, we both escalate. What if there's, you know, an arms race between the aliens and between the human um, alliances? And maybe that becomes, you know, a somewhat stable balance of power. Where we're building weapons, but we don't use them, but we know that we could, but we're all rational states. We know that war is costly. At the same time, I think that, Zach, this is a perfect time for you to enlighten us a little bit more about the Thucydides trap, because I think it would be very pertinent to this whole scenario right here. Right, right. Thank you, Franz. So, Thucydides trap. Who is Thucydides? Thucydides was a historian during the Peloponnesian War a really long time ago. Couldn't give you an exact date. Sorry. But... (laughs) He wrote a book called The History of the Peloponnesian War, and it's a pretty much first-hand account, and he, he, he compiled a ton of different sources about the Peloponnesian War. To make it a little more succinct, essentially, it was a war between two great powers, Sparta and Athens. Athens was the rising power in the conflict, and Sparta had been ruling for a really long time in the, in the peninsula. Right, Thucydides said, and because of this, a huge... 30 years war started between these two countries and it was this brutal essentially wiped out you know greek civilization it wasn't called greek at the point but hellenic civilization as they knew it right and thucydides says the reason for this conflict the reason why war started was because of something that's now known as thucydides trap which is the rising power of athens and the fear it instilled in sparta right so Athens rose, you know, Athens is gaining power militarily, economically, they're, in, you know, increasing their influence throughout the region. Sparta sees this as the current power, and they get worried, they get scared, it's a realist system, right? They see Athens rising, we have to build up our military capabilities, so Sparta responds by increasing their military, you know, uh, I- I- expanding and creating alliances. 
But because they're increasing their military capabilities, the only way that athletes can see this is threatening, right? They see Sparta increasing their military capabilities. They're expanding throughout the peninsula, right? So you have this system in which Athens is increasing their military capabilities, Sparta is increasing their military capabilities, and it's this endless cycle, and it, it, it creates this, you know, almost, Thucydides said it was inevitable, right? Like, this inevitable conflict, because they can only see, you know, because they're continuously building up their power, they have to fight because of this, and that's the problem. So in the alien case, back to the alien case, mm-hmm. the Thucydides trap could essentially be, okay, the United States, if we encourage the Congress to build up our military capabilities to fight back against the aliens, we might be poking the aliens with a stick, right? The aliens might see this as essentially, look, the United States is building up their military capabilities because it's the rational thing to do, but we have to see that as a threat, right? If they're building up their military capabilities, they might come and fight us, right? So as rational people, we have to build up our military capabilities too. And then the U.S. sees that and they get worried and eventually it becomes this inevitable clash of power. And and that's a problem that people say is with realism is, does this inevitable clash have to happen? But I think Thucydides also raises an important point, and that is that the strong do what they can, and the weak suffer what they must. So let's say that as the United States, we sit back and we say, we want to make friends. Guns don't make friends. We're not going to increase our military, and hopefully the aliens won't either. Well, so if we sit back, but the aliens decide not to sit back, which we don't know what they'll do. Intentions are unknowable. They build up weapons until they're stronger than us, and then they're the strong. They'll do what they can to us. And we're since we're sitting weak, ducks, we're sitting we'll penguins essentially. Sitting canyons. <laughs> oh gosh. Yeah. So that's the Thucydides trap, and there's a lot of historical precedents for this too. Besides, you know, Thucydides, we could talk for forever about the Cold War and essentially how, you know, in Eastern Europe, the buildup of military power might have threatened the Soviet Union, so they build up their military power. But yeah, Franz, what's up? Yeah. No. And, and even more recently, you can talk about China's rise mm-hmm. and how America has been dealing with that same scenario. But I think it might be a good time to move on to how a liberalist policymaker will respond to this threat. The Holy Trinity. The Holy Trinity would be advocated. So as a recap, the Holy Trinity is democracy, free trade, and international institutions. So as a liberal, looking at the situation, we want to build up those three pillars. So we don't know very much about the aliens right now. We don't have diplomatic ties yet because they invaded yesterday. They've been busy subjugating. So we want to hopefully try to influence them to be democratic, influence them. Maybe give the penguins a vote. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Democratic societies, you know, those are generally good states according to democratic peace theory. So if they're democratic, they might understand us more and they might be less likely to go to war, which is what we want. We want to establish economic interdependence with them. Right now, we have no trade with the aliens because they just got here. But if we traded with them, then they might be less likely to go to war with us. Exactly. We can we can get some delicious fish. Mm-hmm. In return, they can get, I don't know, you know wh- What we have the aliens don't have, we don't even know that. That's why we need international institutions to share information. So we'll offer them a seat at the UN. We'll offer them a seat at other international governing bodies. And we want to learn about them. And so once we share that information, once we learn about them, we can establish better relationships that will um, lessen the probability of war. Yeah, and as, as liberals, we would say to Congress, I would say, you know, we can avoid the security dilemma. Like, we don't need this endless cycle of 
increasing military capabilities and power, right? And the way we can do that is through international institutions. If we create a treaty with the aliens, because we understand that cooperation is possible, if we can establish a treaty with the aliens that says, all right, you guys stand at Antarctica, you can do whatever the heck you want in Antarctica, we don't mind, but no building up weapons and no continuing into the rest of the world. Exactly, that's when we can get into some of the red lines because as much as liberalists do in fact advocate peace through free trade, through democracy and through international institutions, it's important to remember that they do have some certain red lines and I think it might be useful to highlight those now. So Megan, why don't you tell us one of them? So, well first it's just so important that we have treaties to establish these red lines because without the treaties, without the institutions that help convene countries to bring together these treaties, the aliens won't know you know, what the red lines are, they won't know where to stop, they won't know what we expect of them, and we won't have any sort of agreement. So certain red lines that we could draw uh, could be, you can have Antarctica, you can have rocky islands that nobody really lives on, but if you infringe on Argentina's sovereignty or South Africa's sovereignty, then that would be a red line. And so we might establish that once that red line is crossed, we might take military action, but first we would try economic sanctions, we'd try your sort of diplomacy, we might exclude them from the international system that we've already built them into, which is which would be their to their detriment. Um, if we did take military intervention, it would hopefully be multilateral, maybe approved by the Security Council. Another important thing that we can even do, it's not so much a red line, but it goes along with the three, with the holy trinity of liberalist policies. Um, one of the things that liberals would advocate is more immigration. Or, or the freedom of mobility between nations. So in that case, maybe we can say to the aliens, like, let us send some people to Antarctica, and then you can ch- send, send some people to our countries so we can better understand each other in the future. Right, and another thing that I- is interesting is, let's say we do establish this tree of the aliens. We say, okay, Antarctica is your sovereign land. You can do whatever the heck you want in it. This is something that happens in international politics all the time is sovereignty versus intervention. Let's say the aliens start doing crazy things, right? Like they're doing, you know, for whatever reason, the alien proletariat is being brutally attacked by the alien aristocrats, you know, whatever, the bureaucrats. Life is hard for the penguins. Yes, exactly. Let's say there's some like serious human rights issues going down. Some animal cleansing. Animal cleansing in Antarctica, (laughs) exactly. Right, we established this treaty with them, which said, "Okay, Antarctica is yours." But we know for a fact that they're, you know, doing blatant human right abuses. Human rights abuses. What do we do in that case? Well, some liberals would say we have to intervene. It's the arts our responsibility to protect, which is a really good article. Um, I think it was written in Foreign Affairs. Uh, the responsibility to protect, and this has a lot of you know reverberations in international politics now. Is you know, maybe the Yemen conflict or in Syria is at what point do human right uh, human rights abuses allow the international c- community to infringe on sovereignty of different nations if we have a treaty? A realist would say, absolutely not. You know, the penguins, the human rights abuses in Antarctica do not have any impact on the survival of the United States or whichever country you're in. So there's no reason to intervene. It's unfortunate but it's not our problem. It's not our sovereign state. Now, it's interesting. I think it's going to be important to highlight how a liberalist would encourage a government to intervene in this type of situation. So instead of, say, just going all, all out guns blazing, trying to destroy the other um, state, like 
some realists would do. Uh, a liberalist would first argue uh, that they should do economic sanctions first, sort of like how the P5, the permanent five members of the UN Security Council, um, they imposed sanctions on Iran for a number of years and then that forced Iran to the negotiation, ne negotiating table. If that doesn't work, um, liberalists would argue for a proportional war, meaning that, again, we won't go all guns out and blazing, you know? <laughs> It's just going to be proportional. Like, let's say uh, the aliens, yeah, they, let's say the aliens took St. Helena in the middle of the Atlantic, right? Mm -hmm. A proportional strike would be taking St. Helena back, mm -hmm. something like that. And then finally, war will not be politically mo motivated. It's based, uh, if, we're if we're saying that they are committing human atrocities or animal atrocities in this case, we're going to try and deal with that. But we're not, uh, liberalists will not seek. Regi regime change so much it's more of a human they're focusing more on the humanitarian crises in this certain scenario so to recap the liberal would say you know an interconnected world is what we want we want to interconnect we want to intertwine ourselves with these aliens culturally economically and politically yeah and something that's interesting is liberalism sounds really good right like who wouldn't want peace through peace trees through international institutions right it sounds a lot less scary than the realist idea of this precarious balance of powers between nations it sounds a lot better in theory the problem is will it actually work does international institutions can they actually be fallen that's what the realist would say in regards to liberalism and that's what you know maybe some members of congress would say if the liberal proposed the ideas is essentially how do we know the aliens aren't cheating on these treaties? How do you know the aliens are secretly building up their Death Star in the Ant mm -hmm. in Antarctica and they're preparing to destroy the United States? Right? There's a there's a really a very prominent realist right now. Now it's John J. Mearsheimer, and he wrote an article called "The False Promise of International Institutions," and he essentially talked about why cheating and why you know all these different problems you know destroy the ability for international institutions to actually work right and and that's the common theory is like okay it sounds great liberalism sounds great but in actuality is it possible is it possible to achieve this and you know the liberal response would be well we can stop cheating we can create incentives to stop cheating first of all we can create maybe an organization to go and inspect the aliens you know yeah Franz take it away oh I just wanted to correct myself because Previously, I said that liberalists wouldn't advocate regime change. But if we're going with the assumption that they do see uh, the, 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 gov the, the governments of states as a zero-sum game, as good versus bad, and there's evidence that also, that also says that they do like to intervene in these type of scenarios. So I just want to correct myself and say that liberalists would, would advocate for... for for regime change, but right now we're operating under the assumption that we don't know what the regime of the aliens is. So in that case, that's why we're not advocating it Diplomacy. in this specific moment. Communications. We're, ad we're advocating communication, we're advocating international institutions, and we're advocating free trade. And so it's, it's a nuanced theory. Even within liberalism, there are going to be liberals who think differently amongst themselves. So we're giving a basic overview. And so just just quickly, because I know I, you know, I've been talking way too much about liberalism, but there are some precedents for international treaties actually working. And unfortunately, there are some precedents of international treaties not working. And one that's really important is uh, the NPT, 
Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, uh, essentially creates this organization that goes around the world and inspects, you know, nuclear sites and says, okay, are you enriching, are, are you creating nuclear power, or are you creating nuclear bombs? That's super, super simplified, but that's essentially how it is, right? So if we were to create some sort of, you know, nuclear agency or, you know, alien agency to go inspect the aliens to make sure they're not creating weapons, maybe this could work out, but maybe they could cheat and there's precedence to this right maybe they could just leave the treaty like north korea did and then they established and created nuclear bombs we don't know and that's the problem with liberalism versus realism the problems are it, it's just it's kind of pessimistic it's kind right? of morbid yeah. does anyone really want to live in a system where war is inevitable although i don't know to be perfectly honest with you as someone who's aspiring to be a diplomat it's a lot more interesting the world that say cardinal richie Liu was living in uh, the world in post-Napoleonic one because it just means you know you have to develop more connections you don't have to worry about nukes uh, there's yeah. more of a strategy game right there and we did we did kind of pull the you know we took an easy an easy way out and we just said nukes aren't existing in this world because that really complicates things we're going to do a whole day on nukes but aliens with nukes is it's a little too much for us to handle right now yes <laughs> In your view, if liberal if liberal critique of realism is you guys are paranoid and pessimistic and are warmongers, and the realist critique of liberals are you crazy idealists, naive hippies, hippies. So, <laughs> okay. Going on to constructivists, <laughs> maybe the true hippies here. In that case, yeah, let's let's move on to constructivists. Zach, do you want to take it away? Yeah, sure. So, like I said, constructivists wouldn't necessarily create these prescriptive, you know policies right they wouldn't advocate for balance of power they wouldn't necessarily advocate for treaties or anything like that however there are options that a constructivist would say there are things that a constructivist would advocate for so first of all a constructivist would say war with aliens is only inevitable if we think it's inevitable right and the problem is once again are societal perceptions sticky or not, right? Like, is it possible to change people's ideas? But in theory, a constructivist would say, we can change everyone's view, make everyone think aliens aren't super scary. We can create social programs and create academic writing and saying, okay, look at all the great things aliens have done for humanity and for the galaxy and whatever. Look at all their technology. They build the pyramids. They, they <laughs> built the pyramids, exactly. They, they are the Illuminati. So... You know, by by this kind of societal outreach, you know, maybe through academics or through media or stuff like that, we can change the way society perceives aliens to make war not inevitable. Right. Then there's also the idea of is cooperation possible? Right. So you might have people a, a constructivist would say, well, realists say cooperation is not possible with the aliens. Constructivists would say. Cooperation is only impossible with the aliens because we think it's impossible with the aliens. Let's change that. Let's work towards a way in which cooperation is possible. And then there would be some constructivists. Remember, all of these theories of international relations are huge umbrellas. So every time you're talking about one, you are talking maybe about a specific facet of one of these problems. So one facet of constructivism would say, okay, cooperation is possible and we can change societal perceptions. Whereas another facet would say, we can't change anything. This is just the way the world works. Sorry. That is a very good point, Zach. One thing that we have skipped over today is that realism, liberalism, and constructivism have different branches. Different branches don't think the same way. 
they are under this big umbrella of realism, real liberalism, and constructivism. Having said that, um, I think it's important to say that in this case, one of the big things about constructivism is that they rely on history to to like s to understand a certain scenario. But right now, we have no history because this is the first alien invasion that the Earth has been ha has suffered from. So how would we respond to that? Apart from the social programs and freedom of mobility to try and, you know, teach our populations about the good that aliens do. Ron brings up a good point. We don't know the alien history yet. We don't know if they're going to be sort of an expansionist culture or maybe they come from a peaceful culture. And so Zach talked about how cooperation is possible if us Americans think it is possible. But what if the aliens don't think it's possible? We need both societies to change their thought patterns which can be hard to change if we want cooperation to be possible. Luckily, the aliens speak all languages. <laughs> we don't know how they did that. Maybe it was the internet. Uh, and then the last kind of thing that maybe constructivists would say is, and this was brought up in the book International Politics and Zombies, and this is kind of like a blatant you know, draw to that book, so please read it. But maybe aliens can just become part of society. Right? Like, Why do we have to you know, quarantine them off in the, Atlantic, uh, in the Antarctic? Like, maybe they can come join the United States, Europe, China, absolutely, etc. And, you know, the idea constructivists would say is aliens are only aliens because we think they're aliens. Maybe they can really be part of society if we want them to be part of society. And the way we'll do that is by establishing different societal perceptions. Yeah, right now we're living in a multicultural society. Why can't we live in a multi-species society? Let's say we just say to the aliens in Antarctica, hey, you can get 15 of your best students and send them to Johns Hopkins University so they can learn and interact with humans. And then we'll send you 15 of our best students and you, they can study at the Alien International University. <laughs> mm -hmm. I don't know, but that's a way Maybe of... Maybe an alien can join the podcast. Exactly. Like the main <laughs> thing here is that we have Diversity. to normalize each other in each other's eyes. Mm -hmm. And that way we can create a world that doesn't necessarily think that war is inevitable boom wow bam Sorry. ron's just laid down the hammers so if you're a realist if you're a liberal if you're a constructivist just understand that your thought patterns make the world around you or maybe it's just the way it is yeah so we've presented the three theories we talked about realism we talked about liberalism we talked about constructivism we did our best to talk about the flaws of each theory flaws of constructivism aren't quite as you know, prevalent because it is very abstract, right? But what do you believe in? What do you think is correct? And that's what's important is because there is really no correct answer, at least as we know it, right? There could be objective truths, but we don't know them right now. So what do you think is right? Do you think a balance of power system that realism proposes is the correct way to move? Or do you think the Thucydides trap is too dangerous and it's not something I agree with? Do you think that international institutions and democracy and free trade are gonna bring us with the aliens together? Who knows? And do you think that aliens are really just another member of society that's been ostracized and cast down in the Antarctic? Who knows? Or maybe this entire conversation was just unfortunate because maybe they just have a Death Star and they're just here to kill us all. Yeah, maybe maybe <laughs> this is the end. <laughs> maybe this is our last podcast. They're, they're right currently here. drilling into the core of the earth and penguin slaves yeah oh, they're God. slowly stealing the magma away from the core 
sending it back to the spaceships so that the co- the, oh the Earth God. will soon just freeze over. Oh, God. A quick s- aside. We've been sitting in the dark for the past 20 minutes. Um, <laughs> very why? dramatic. It's yes. actually very pleasant. No, it's awesome. Like and it. because so. hopefully this isn't too noticeable, but there's like this very loud hum of the lights. Uh, and it but was, no longer. But no longer. It's really bothering me. So I turned off the lights, and Megan kind of looked at me a little funny, but I was like, okay, we're doing this. So I feel like we're in a spaceship, like in like the dark like, right, It sets up the alien theme. I'm <laughs> honestly so down for this. Maybe we can get our own Millennial Falcon. Oh my Wait. gosh. <laughs> We're doing it. All right. Business. Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, we want to say thank you so much for listening this far in the podcast. We really, really appreciate it. And we spend a lot of time and effort, but we love doing this. Like, this is what we enjoy. So, mm-hmm. and we you. are hoping that we can bring some professors next podcast, which you should be looking forward to that in what? Mid February, maybe. Mid February, Valentine's Day. Valentine's, Valentine's Day. Yeah. Right smack that on Valentine's Day, <laughs> and we also want to give a big thank you to the International Students Students No International Studies Leadership Council. Mm-hmm. Let me get that right, for not only helping us um, do this opportunity, but also encouraging us to keep going and giving us all the information that we do and need. And sending out our email blasts. Those are so important. <laughs> And so podcast is going forward into the future. Hopefully we will broaden um, our own knowledge and each other's knowledge of history and of the future. And, you know, with more knowledge, we will test our own conceptions of the theories. And so going forward, keep them in the back of your mind. Wonder how will realism fit to this? And is realism still relevant? How will liberalism fit to this? Is it still relevant? We try to be neutral. Uh, you, got, you guys decide. I'm a constructivist. <laughs> I'm a realist. I'm, I'm not sure. <laughs> by the way l- quick little thing um, by the time this podcast comes out hopefully we will have social media accounts hopefully they will all be named Hopkins P-O-F-A or POFA Twitter is out right now you can follow us at Hopkins POFA and there's an important contest that's hugely going on hugely important listen up listen up so we have some stickers some really awesome stickers. Premium. We have, we have laptop stickers, water bottle stickers, whatever you want. They're really nice. They're pretty big. It says Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. It's got this beautiful Johns Hopkins logo. Gorgeous. If you want to rep your POFA pride. Your favorite favorite podcast. Favorite, favorite POFA. group on campus, that is. <laughs> uh, retweet us. Retweet the, 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 the tweet that we were going to send out in a couple of minutes. And, and tweet at us. Tweet at Hopkins POFA. Say why you want the sticker. Maybe not. Just say hi. If you tweet at us, first person that tweeted us, you guys get a sticker, and they're really great. Tweet it up. All right. All right. So thank you very much for, for listening. Uh, I'm Francis Cilia, and I'm joined with Megan and Zach. Hi. And we're out. Wait. Good luck with the can aliens. We, can we do a final, uh, a final alien? Oh, right. yeah, yeah. Three, two, one. Two, two, two. two.